Well, good morning, East Campus. It is uh, so good to be here with you. Uh, my name is John McHale, and I serve as the community groups pastor for Parkview Church and do a bulk of my work at Central Campus, uh, but then every once in a while have the unique privilege uh, to come over to East Campus and open up God's Word, and I am just so incredibly excited to do that this morning. We are finishing up a series, like Doug mentioned, uh, New Life is the title of the series, and really what we're trying to get at with this series is trying to study what God produces in someone who is surrendered to the gospel. And so, uh, it, go figure, they asked me to speak on community. Uh, that's kind of my, my role and my task on staff, and so it's my joy to come and talk about how the gospel produces a desire for community in the local church. And we're going to see, as we study Colossians 3, the kind of community that God is really after. And so our passage this morning is Colossians 3, verses 12 to 14. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn there. A little bit about Colossians 3. Colossians 3 is a wonderful chapter. It is awesome. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. The first four verses of Colossians 3, really what Paul is doing is he's establishing our identity. That for a Christian, uh, when a Christian believes the gospel and the finished work of Jesus, they are united to Jesus in a way that is life-changing. And we, one of the foundational truths in Christianity is that a Christian has a stable identity unified with Christ. And it's from there in the rest of the chapter that Paul talks about what it looks like to grow in the Christian life. And he uses this imagery of clothing. And he says, put off the old clothes of sin and put on the new clothes of, of love, the new clothes of the gospel of Jesus. And that's where we find ourselves in Colossians 3 verse 12. And so let's read this together. Uh, Colossians 3, verse 12. I probably should have turned there before you guys did, but that's okay. Uh, this is God's word to you this morning. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let me pray uh, to ask God for help as we study this passage. Uh, Father, we are so incredibly desperate for your help. I'm desperate for your help. I pray that you would... Uh, just purge out of me uh, this self-sufficiency. I pray that you would help me depend on your spirit as we open this text. And I pray for us as we sit under your word, would you just dump more and more of your presence on this place, on this campus, on these people here. 
that you would produce in us ears that are eager to listen, eyes that long to see the glory of God, and hearts that gladly obey you. And just pray in faith, trusting that you will do something here among us. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I was doing some research for this sermon, I came across an interesting story that hit news stations in 2015. There was a man, a German man, who was being divorced by his wife. And the judge had ruled uh, on this case, and he told the man, you must give your wife half. And so the man took the judgment. He went home and decided how he was going to react to this uh, this judgment that was pronounced on their divorce case. And this man decided, he went home and he decided to literally cut all of his possessions in half. We have a few pictures of some of the items that he cut in half. He, he cut his couch in half. He also cut a teddy bear. I apologize if that brings nightmares. He also cut his laptop computer. Look at the precision there. And then lastly, he even cut his car in half. And the man, uh, he made a video of him methodically going through his entire house and cutting his possessions in half. And in the video, there's an inscription in the video, and it says this. Thank you for 12 beautiful years, Laura! Exclamation point. You really earned half. And it makes you wonder when we see something like this that is so, so weird and stupid, it makes you wonder, what, what would drive someone to do something this foolish? What would drive someone probably better to think of it as something so cruel, methodically going through everything? The guy had like five different saws to cut through glass and cut through steel and cut through fabric. But what would motivate someone to do this? <clears throat> and as I've pondered this, I keep coming back to this idea of resentment. Resentment. Resentment is a heart culture of condemnation and punishment. It's very specifically, it's harboring bitterness against another person because of something they did or didn't do. And what's happening with resentment is... Uh, what we do is we create this courtroom in our hearts where we sit as judge and we pronounce judgment and begin to inflict pain on another person, to inflict punishment. It's kind of like in the movies when you see a dartboard with a person's face on it and you throw the darts at it. It's, it's like having a punching bag in your heart for someone that has wronged you. And this is what makes resentment a little, a little tricky is oftentimes resentment is birthed because someone has actually really wronged you. And so what we might say is that it is a misplaced sense of justice. It's a good desire. We worship a God of justice, but it's diseased. And we'll see a little bit how that happens. We're so prone to resentment. In the small things, I think of when someone says something indirectly that cuts us down belittles us in front of others, there's an opportunity for resentment. Road rage is another great example of this, right? Someone cuts you off in the car 
and you want to punish them. You want to get back at them. But resentment is also tempting with the big things. When a spouse totally abandons their marriage vows and runs from a marriage, or maybe a, a loyal, devoted friend, someone you've spent your whole life with, and they totally betray you and stab you in the back. So tempting to resentment. And oftentimes, um, well, sometimes it, it stays internal, but oftentimes it bubbles up to the surface. And it comes out in our words, in our actions, but maybe in our non-action. You've heard of the silent treatment? It's resentment, inflicting punishment on another person. And we're so prone to it. And the Bible knows this. And in this same chapter, Paul addresses this reality when he says this. But now, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Paul didn't necessarily have the language of resentment in his day, but these are all things included in the dynamic of resentment. Malice, wrath, hurtful words towards another person. Now, Paul doesn't end there, and praise God he doesn't. He gets to our passage this morning, and he gives us the best medicine for resentment. You know what it is? A culture of love. A culture of love. And if there's a target that I'm shooting towards as we study this passage, it's this. That the gospel calls us to create a culture of love. In our congregation, at East Campus, we want East Campus to be in a culture of love when as leaders are giving information and, and pointing direction and giving us a vision that it's done in love, but also as we receive it, that we're receiving it in love. In our community groups, in our families, that we would create a culture of love. And it's not just a culture that understands the doctrines of love, but it's a culture that's practicing love in really tangible ways. And we're going to see this dynamic as we study three things this morning. The first one is the gospel of love. The second one is the close of love. And the third is the goal of love. So let's look at the first point, the gospel of love. The gospel of love elevates forgiveness. If you look back at the text, look at verse 12, the first few phrases in verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And then if you look down at verse 13, the end of verse 13, Paul says, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And so as Paul, he, he calls us to create a culture of love, and he says, this is what you need to do. You need to build a culture of love. He directs our attention to the gospel. This is his argument. He says, create a culture of love because of the gospel. And there is a phrase that I want to draw your attention to in verse 12. It's this phrase, God's chosen ones. Isn't that great? Like, set the theology aside. We'll talk about it. But think about just this idea of 
God chose me. <laughs> Isn't that crazy? It's so incredibly wonderful. And if you look at the Bible, all throughout the Bible, God's people are God's chosen people. God sovereignly chooses his people. So if you're a Christian here this morning, God chose you. You didn't choose him. There's this notion that we seek after God and we find God. We didn't find God. God found us. This is the gospel. Now, I think sometimes when we talk about this piece of theology, we get a little squeamish and a little skittish. And, and there, is, there is some nuance here, but what I'd like to say is God's sovereign choice in salvation doesn't swallow up human choice. What do I mean? The, the Bible is clear that God chooses us in salvation. So God chooses us. We didn't choose him. And yet, there is human responsibility, right? We're called to believe, to respond to the gospel. We're called to go out and declare it. And so there's a tension there. And it makes us uncomfortable. But the tension, even the tension teaches us something. I've been spending the month of, uh, what month is it? Eight, so it's May. April. In April, I was reading the same passage every morning, uh, Isaiah 55, and the prophet speaks on behalf of the Lord, and he says, uh, the Lord says, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your thoughts. And so it, it, we often think that we're going to fully understand an infinite being, and he has revealed us his truth and who he is and how he works. But it, doesn't, it shouldn't surprise us that there's a tension there. It, it, it doesn't really fit up here. But good theology is going to keep that tension there. Now, I say all that not to have a theology lesson, though theology is important. But I say all that so that we can receive this with the force that I think it's intended. So if you think about this idea of God choosing you, if you're a Christian here this morning, this is your narrative. Before the foundation of the world, God saw you. He saw all of your life. And what did he see? He saw all of your failures. He saw all of your disappointments. He saw all of your disobedience. And he said, I want him. I want her. And they will become an object of my grace and my forgiveness. Isn't that awesome? That's so good. And so Paul's argument, what he's saying is, we don't really have rights to withhold forgiveness. We have no right to resentment. Because God has forgiven all of this. So how are we going to withhold forgiveness for this? Right? If we look at Jesus, Jesus is the only one who actually had a right to uh, pronounce judgment and inflict punishment. He was the only one as God, as a holy God of the universe. And what did he do? He gave up his rights. He gave them up so that we could enjoy forgiveness. And this means that we are called to forgive 
C.S. Lewis has a quote that is so helpful uh, on this point. Listen to what he says. To be a Christian means to forgive the inexcusable because God has forgiven the inexcusable in you. This is hard. Thank you for that, C.S. Lewis. This is hard. How can we do it? Only, I think, by remembering where we stand, by meaning our words when we say our prayers each night, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us. We are offered forgiveness on no other terms. To refuse is to refuse God's mercy for ourselves. The gospel of love elevates forgiveness. So uh, there was a story that became popular a few years ago called Unbroken. Uh, Some of you may have, there was a book written and then later there was a movie. I'm told the book is better. I saw the movie. Sorry if if you're offended by that, but um, I'm not a huge reader, so. But this story, Unbroken, is about this guy, Louis Zamperini. And Louis was an Olympic athlete who later became an army officer. And uh, his story, like just tons of adversity, tons of strength. And that's not why I bring this story up. But uh, he eventually ended up in a POW camp. And in this POW camp, the man was brutalized. He was tortured. He was humiliated, largely because he was an Olympic athlete and the enemy wanted to show its domination over America. And so this man was brutalized. And eventually, he got out of the POW camp, and he moved home to the States and uh, started a family, and he meets Jesus in the process. And part of his redemption is traveling back to the country where he was tortured and brutalized. And he sits down with the men that had hurt him, and he offers them forgiveness. Such a powerful, powerful story. At the end of his biography, he says this, I think the hardest thing in life is to forgive. Hate is self-destructive. If you hate somebody, you're not hurting the person you hate. You're hurting yourself. Forgiveness is a healing. Actually, it's a real healing. Now, I imagine in a room of this size with this many people that there are people in here who have had terrible, terrible things done to them brutal things. And this is something that has just struck me as a young pastor. I've only been a pastor three years. And it, there, we live in a brutal world. And people are hurting. And if you're not a person who has had something terrible done to you, you should know they're in here. Now, what I'm not saying is I'm not trying to minimize the hurt and the pain. Because some of us have been hurt profoundly. I'm not trying to minimize that. And there's a whole conversation about how you navigate the waters of deep hurt. But what I am saying is that our goal, the the goal that we need to shoot for, is forgiveness. Because forgiveness is the path to freedom. This is what we're saying. One author says, Bitterness is cancer. 
it eats upon the host. And we believe at Parkview that the gospel has healing power, both as we receive forgiveness, but then as we extend it to other people. And I, I often hear people say, and maybe you've heard this before, forgiveness is about me, it's not about them. And I don't, I don't think that this is really that helpful. Because if we look at this passage, forgiveness is about God. Forgiveness is about receiving his love and grace and then extending it to others. It's about imaging God to the world. And we are healed in the process, which is pretty awesome. It's, it's kind of cool the way God set that up. Now, at our house, uh, we have some pretty deep convictions about forgiveness. And one of the things that we have committed to doing is to inject the language of forgiveness into our home. And so we're teaching our kids, really just one kid, because my baby is not really learning much. She's still learning how to sleep. It's not going that well. <laughs> but my two-and-a-half-year-old, we're trying to teach her forgiveness. And so when she pushes someone at the park, which just happened, like, a couple days ago, she almost pushed a kid like 10 feet off. And so we're helping her understand, okay, don't push. Pushing is bad. But hey, you need to go apologize and ask for forgiveness. But I think more clearly where this is taught is when I wrong her, which happened just a few days ago. I got a screaming baby on my shoulder, and she, my two-year-old just will not listen to me. Like, I don't get it. I've, to I've told you 12 times. And she just, she won't listen. And so I snapped, and I yelled at her. And like most two-year-olds do when their parents yell at them, she lost it. And so I had to go to her, and I had to get down, and I had to say, Sawyer, the way I spoke to you was wrong. It was wrong. Your dad should never, never speak to you that way. Will you forgive me? And the sweetest words I hear from Sawyer right now are, Daddy, I forgive you. It's so sweet. And she has no idea what it means, right? But we've injected the language into her vocabulary. It's no different in the church. It's no different at East Campus. We need to inject the language of forgiveness. We need to speak it. It needs to be on our lips. And that's going to take a ton of humility to own when we have wronged people. And it's also going to take great courage to go to someone when you've been hurt by someone. Now, I actually was encouraged because I found this on the wall over there in the bathroom. This is the four-part apology. And it says, number one, I'm sorry for dot, dot, dot. Two, this is wrong because. Three, in the future I will. And number four, will you forgive me? So it's already being injected over here. We just got to keep building that culture of forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah, I will. I will do that. 
So the gospel of love elevates forgiveness, but the gospel also gives us a platform to put on the clothes of love. And the clothes of love dress us for the occasion. And the occasion is creating and building that culture. And we see these clothes identified explicitly in verse 12. You can look at verse 12. Paul says, Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And so as I said before, the, the language Paul is using here is, is, is clothing. There's a metaphor of clothing. And he's saying, put on these new clothes of love. And what I want to do is there's five features of these clothes. And I just want to run through each of them so we can kind of get a glimpse at these lovely clothes that Jesus has given us in the gospel. So the first one is compassion. This is a heart of mercy. It's seeing others from God's perspective. All the, the population, populations and pain that the world runs from and bails on, Christians are, are going towards. They're pressing into areas of oppression. They're pressing into areas of neglect. Second one is kindness. This is gracious sensitivity to the needs of others. It's just a genuine desire to be a blessing and to help. The next one is humility. Others focused. In another place, Paul defines humility as counting others more significant than yourself. Just how radically would this change the way we engage with people, the way we talk to people? If everyone I speak to, whether it's in the church, whether it's in my neighborhood, whether it's um, with my family, that I am saying, okay, I need to count this person more significant than myself. And you go like this. Okay, all right, let's go. Think, think about that. Whew. Compassion, kindness, humility. And then the list just keeps on getting better. Meekness. Talk about a powerhouse. This is, meekness is, oh. So meekness is the exact opposite of resentment. If resentment is setting up a courtroom in our hearts where we sit as judge, meekness says, I'm not the judge. This ain't my courtroom. God is judge. God will defend me. And so very, very vividly, this is resentment repellent. And you see how these things, if we're wearing these clothes, temptation to be, to be resentful is going to be there, but it's almost like they, it bounces right off the clothes and is pushed out and repelled. Meekness is absorbing the roughness and sin of others and not quickly defending oneself. Man, how countercultural is this, right? In a culture that values a dominant leaders, um, dominant attitudes, you defend yourself. I mean, that's what it means to be American. Meekness is something altogether different. I love what John Piper says about meekness. He says, meekness loves to learn. And it counts the corrective blows of a friend as precious. <laughs> oh, man. 
when I, when I get those corrective blows, I'm kind of like, all right, well, you see this in me, but I see this, 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 this in you. But meekness accepts, considers precious the corrective blows of a friend. And when it, may, when it must say a critical word to a person caught in sin or error, right? Meekness is not a punching bag. It's not absorbing everything. There is a time to confront, to lovingly confront. But listen to this. When it does confront, it speaks from the deep conviction of its own fallibility and its own susceptibility to sin and its utter dependence on the grace of God. Man. And then lastly, patience. A willingness to endure with people. To go the distance. I lift weights, and so oftentimes we'll get this big bar and put a ton of weight on it, and you, you just kind of bear the weight. I mean, you're supposed to bear it. I, I don't always bear that much. I'm kind of scrawny. But it's this idea of, of enduring and bearing with people. So these are the clothes, and they're incredibly wonderful, and they dress us for the occasion of creating a culture of love. <clears throat> now, when I think about this point, I always come back to this idea of a wedding. I think a lot of people in here have probably been to a wedding of someone they really enjoy or value, right? Uh, and what's the first thing that you have to think about when you go to a wedding? What am I going to wear? Right? You want to look good? Everybody wants to look good at a wedding. And usually that outfit has a price tag. And I think in the back of our minds, we're all thinking, I could use that money for something else. Right? Because really, the, the wedding outfit is always like you wear it once and it just sits in your closet and collects dust. But here's the thing. With these clothes, they're already paid for. You don't have to earn these clothes. You don't have to work and muscle up these clothes. They're in your closet. All you got to do is put them on. All you got to do is wake up, open the closet door, and say, there they are. These new clothes are so awesome and so great to put on. And so the clothes of love dress us for the occasion. And then the last point is the goal of love. The goal of love is a safe environment for growth. If you look at verse 14 in this passage... It says this, And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Now, the, the Greek word, this translated perfect harmony, it has this idea, this sense of wholeness and completeness. And really what Paul is getting at is this idea of maturity, of growing up into the image of Jesus. This wholeness, uh, almost perfection process where we begin to look like Jesus. And if we retrace through the points that I've already said, we already see this already happening. In the way we speak the language of forgiveness, we, we image God. We show the world what God is like when forgiveness is on our lips. And then also, when we put on these clothes, I mean, if you want to see these clothes in human flesh, you look at Jesus. 
And when we put them on and begin to embody these clothes, we begin to embody Christ-likeness. And this is how we create a culture of love among God's people. Now, there's a word that I used, safety. I use that word with lots of intentionality. Safety. There's a pastor in Tennessee, and he uses this equation for the local church that is gospel plus safety plus time. And listen to what he says about safety. It's so, it's so, so good. Safety. A non-accusing environment. No embarrassing anyone. No manipulation, oppression, or condescension. But respect and sympathy and understanding. Hmm. Where sinners can confess and unburden their souls. A church environment where no one seeking the Lord has anything to fear. Isn't that sweet? That is so sweet. And if you're a leader in this room, this is where we have to go. We have to, we have to help create a culture of safety. And you see how meekness and safety fit in together. Loves to learn. Loves, uh, so, so I, I am a 33-year-old white boy that grew up in the suburbs. There's a lot I don't know about the world. And I need to not always stand up here and speak. I need to be in the seat of a learner. I need to learn what is happening in this world. And I need to learn how to create a place of safety. This is what people carrying big, painful hurt, this is what they need. A safe place where they can unburden and say the miserable, terrible things that have been done to them. And they're not met with expectation. They're not met with cliche sayings that we love to say in the church. They're met with compassion. They're met with kindness, with meekness, and with patience. The last thing I'll say on this point is uh, it's not directly in this passage, but in the New Testament, we see this community apologetic. Maybe it's my community pastor coming out that I got to slip it in here. But this community apologetic, <clears throat> I think it fits with building a culture of love. And so when I use, when I talk about mission or missional community, I, I love the definition of displaying and declaring the gospel. It is, the gospel is words, it is something to be spoken, but it also is something to be seen in a person and in a community. And I think, I already shared my age, so you guys know. I am the oldest millennial, so I like to consider myself big brother millennial. If you think that's corny, that's fine. I, I debated whether to share that publicly, but it's out there, so who cares? But the last 20, 30 years, maybe even 50 or 60, the culture was asking a question. Is it true? And you could present the gospel and people could access the truth of it. They could engage with it. Millennials are no longer asking this question. Millennials are asking the question, is it beautiful? 
Is it beautiful? Show me something beautiful, and then we'll talk about truth. And as the church has historically done, the church always rises. When the, when the culture is asking a question, the church rises to answer because it's built into this thing. Jesus says, they will know you by your love for one another. It's, it's meant to be a beautiful testimony and display. And the trouble is, most millennials, their experience with the church is not love. And so the truth of the gospel is, in a sense, ruined by that. The goal of love is a safe environment for growth. I have had uh, the just great opportunity to get to know a wonderful woman named Nancy Serda. Some of you may know her. She's been around Parkview for years and years and years. She's wonderful, awesome. And uh, she shared her story last year in our community group, and it's filled with pain and with hurt. When she was a girl, her dad was ripped from her life and just kind of, she lost her dad. She never, he never contacted her going forward. Later on in her marriage, her husband bailed on her in a really hurtful way. And she just, tons and tons of pain. And I was on the phone with her a couple weeks ago asking her if I could share her story publicly to all of you. And she said yes. But she said, I was so alone. And, and she literally said, I've never heard this expression before, but she's like, I felt like I had a bag of rocks on me. And Parkview became my family. Parkview embraced her and gave her a safe place where she could grow. There was no expectations. There was no saying, okay, in a year, you're going to look like this. You need to get over that. Get over that. There was just a safe place where she could unburden her hurt and grow in the gospel. And this is what we need. Now, there may be someone in here who is saying this or thinking this. You said church and safety in the same sentence. That has not been my experience. A couple things I would say to that person. First thing, I am so glad you're here. That is so incredibly courageous that you are still here or you've come back. And I think there's something wooing you there's something wooing you back to this book, to this message, to Jesus. There, in all of the worldviews out there, Christianity holds love at the center like no other worldview. Because at the center of Christianity is the Christian gospel. And what is the Christian gospel if it is a God who takes on our hurt? He takes on our shame. He takes on our pain so that we can grow. And that, that's going to keep love at the center. And as we begin to pursue Jesus, as we continue to submit all of life to this book, it's going to help us create a culture of love. And so the goal of love is a safe environment for growth. And so basically, to summarize and in conclusion, the gospel calls us 
to be a people that are creating a culture of love. And we do this through speaking the language of forgiveness on a regular basis. Uh, I was driving the car on the way here and I went by St. Mary's and the title of the message was A Sacrament of Reconciliation. I just thought, that's so great. And if that language, sacrament really means means of grace. So there is grace experienced in reconciliation. That's what we're talking about. A culture of love that is speaking and receiving forgiveness. Also, we create this culture by putting on the clothes of love. They're in our closet. All we got to do is wake up and put them on. And then lastly, through building a safe environment that we can grow. A place where we can unburden our hurt and pain. Where we listen to people with no expectation that we understand what they're saying. But we create a place of safety, a place of refuge. And the goal is that we would become this beautiful witness to Jesus in this city, in our neighborhoods, and in this world. That people would look at the church and say, I have no idea what those people believe, but they love each other like crazy. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for... um, for your grace and mercy that you extend to us. We, we drift. We so easily, the song says, prone to wander. You run after us in our wandering and we're so grateful for it. We thank you for the new mercies that you have provided this morning and the grace you have given us to listen to your word. I pray that the seeds that were planted, that you would bear fruit. I pray, Holy Spirit, would you help us this week? Remind us of your forgiveness and the power of the gospel to enable us to forgive others. We love you and trust you. And just pray a blessing over the East Campus and all that you intend to do here. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.